Colossians chapter 2. Today we're going to be studying together verses 11 to 15. Colossians 2, 11 to 15. Satan is the one who is waging war against us. As it says in Ephesians chapter 6, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the spiritual forces of evil, and, and on it goes with its description. It's Satan and his spiritual powers under his authority that we are striving against, who are striving against us. And we need to be aware, the Bible is clear, of his schemes, of his designs against us. We must not be ignorant of those schemes that he has. I think that Satan does three things over and over and over against you. Three things. And two of them are very obvious. So obvious it's ridiculous, really. But the first two parts of his scheme are very effective at the same time. The first thing and the obvious thing that he does is he tempts you. He puts something before you, whether it's actually physically before you or just in your thoughts or whatever, but he he puts something before you, something beautiful, something pleasurable, something to crave, and it may very well be, I think it is really, tailored to you, to your personality and your desires, and perhaps even to your mood in that very moment. But it's something to satisfy you. He makes you to feel that you need this thing to be satisfied in your life. You must have it. And then the second thing he does, once you have actually taken the bait, is he says, how could you? The first thing he says, you need to do this. Just do it. And then he says, why would you do such a thing? He makes you feel miserable in your guilt. He makes you filled with shame. He says that you are worthless, that you will never measure up, that you are so far away from God. And that's the second thing. Over and over and over again, he does this. And then there's a third thing, I think, as well. He says to us, now hold up. Don't despair. I have a way back for you. I have a way that you can measure up. You just need to try harder. You just need to to muster up your willpower. Bear down, grit your teeth, and perform. And you will be worthy. You will be worthy and you will measure up. You you must perform for salvation. And it's a a three-track playlist that is common to all of us, but at the same time, customized to each of us. That's on repeat. A three-track playlist on repeat all the days of your life until you are with God. Here is the pleasure of sin, first of all. And then the pain of the shame of sin. And then performance for salvation from sin. This is what Satan does to us over and over and over. And there is an answer to every single one of these tracks. A three-word answer. It's not a, a magic formula or anything like that, so it's not just like you can recite this and poof, all the temptations or the feelings that he puts in, you know, it's not that all, all of that is suddenly gone. But 
there's this three-word answer. We need to understand what it means. I have Christ. I have Christ is the answer to every one of these tracks of Satan. To the pleasure of sin, I have Christ. To the pain of the shame for sin, it's I have Christ. And the temptation, the the urge to perform, to measure up, to be worthy for salvation, it's the same answer. I have Christ. Look back down at um, verses 8 to 10 in Colossians 2. Paul says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. And that's what we're talking about when we speak of what Satan is doing in our lives. It's all empty deceit. According to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In other words, we have Christ. And that's our answer to the spiritual powers and to Satan who has authority over them. That's the answer to their attacks. We have Christ. And we need to know that Christ is enough. Again, it's not just a formula you can say and then poof, all of that is gone. We need to know what it means. What we have in Jesus. Because Satan's temptations are potent. Because the case that he makes against us, you know that he is the accuser of the people of God. The case he makes against us is pretty credible. And he would steer us down a path of performance for salvation. So we need to know what it means that we have Christ and how in Christ, it's enough. It's enough for us. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and we're going to ask His help that He will help us to understand and to take to heart what it means that we have Jesus. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the Gospel of our Lord Jesus. And I thank You, Lord, that You have made it that by grace, through faith, we have Your Son. We are in Him and He is in us. And we belong to you forever. I pray, Father, that the truth of having Christ would be so powerful in our hearts that um, we would have strength to, to overcome temptation that we haven't had before. I pray that we would be more victorious than ever before. Lord, may this lead to our, our change, to greater courage and conformity to Jesus. We ask these things in his name and for his sake. Lord, please give to us in your grace your Holy Spirit. In Christ's name, amen. Let's go on to read our uh, text in full. Actually, we'll read verses uh, 11 to 12 right now, and then we'll save the rest for later. Verse 11. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Now I'll tell you up front that these two verses are complicated. Both of them, we'll spend a good bit of time on both to unpack them so we can get them. 
Um, but the, the other three verses that remain for us to study are easier for us to understand. So it's nice, kind of, you know, we got the hard part first. All right. Verse 11, first of all, Paul speaks of being circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. You may recall that the Colossian Christians were facing up against false teaching. And wherever false teaching takes a Jewish turn, there's going to be a push for circumcision as one of the the major commands of the law of Moses. The Jewish false teachers and those who adopted their false teaching were always pushing for Gentile Christians to be to have circumcision as well. And again, it, it was a big thing for these New Testament uh, Christians, and it was a big thing in the law of Moses. Circumcision was the sign given to Abraham and his descendants, which ended up being codified in the law of Moses, that marked out the Jewish males and their households as the people of God. This required physical cutting, which they received, the Jewish males received on their eighth day, marked them out as God's people. But the the physical cutting was to be a sign of something deeper, a sign of something greater. It was to be a physical sign of a spiritual reality. So when the people of God were on the brink of the promised land, they were about to inherit it as their own, as God had promised them. This is what Moses told the people regarding circumcision. He said, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. That's what it was about. The physical sign pointed to a spiritual, invisible reality that they were cut apart from the world spiritually unto God. Paul would later say in Romans, no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit. So as these false teachers were coming to the Colossian church and they were telling the Colossians, well, you're a Gentile, sure, but you still need to be circumcised. You you need Jesus, sure, but you need more than Christ too. You also need to obey the law and you need to start with this matter of circumcision. Of course, this had been an issue for the, the New Testament Christians for a long time already back in... Acts chapter 15, it says, um, there were some men who came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, quote, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And so there was a, a council in Jerusalem where the apostles and the elders of the church in Jerusalem came together and decided that matter once and for all, that the Gentile Christians were not required to obey the law of Moses starting with circumcision. That was not required. Uh, it was required, of course, that they abstained from sexual immorality, that they gave to the poor and, and all of those things, but circumcision was now off of the table. But there's still the deeper issue. The deeper issue is what 
circumcision pointed to spiritually. Are you set apart to God? Are you spiritually what circumcision signified physically? Again, and this applies to you and to me. Are you spiritually what circumcision signified physically? Paul is going to remove all doubt with a very graphic picture. Basically to say, are you circumcised? Well, he says that it was no little cut. No little cut and and separation that happened to you believers. We have been spiritually circumcised. Immediately we say, well, how? How did this happen? And, And when did this happen? Look at verse 11 again. He says it happened by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ. What does Paul mean by this? Putting off the body of the flesh. This is a phrase that, as far as I know, Paul only uses here. Only here and back actually in chapter 1. So if we're going to understand what he means here, we need to go back to his first use. And see how Paul used the phrase body of flesh in chapter 1. And if we have clear indication of what he meant there, it will be good indication of what he means here. So back to chapter 1 for a moment. Verses 21 to 22. Paul said, You who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled, in his body of flesh by his death. In his body of flesh by his death, he has reconciled us to God. So Paul used the phrase body of flesh back in chapter 1 to speak of what Jesus accomplished in his death. And how he used the phrase there, speaking of the suffering of death, is a very solid indication of what Paul means in chapter 2. So back to chapter 2, verse 11. Our spiritual circumcision wasn't accomplished in a small cutting, but in violence done to the whole body, to Jesus' body, so that this violence done to his body affected the separation of his human spirit from his human body, which is death. The separation of the body from the spirit is death. And that is the putting off of the body of flesh. This is Christ's circumcision. Such a separation, not a little cutting, but a great violence. Not a little separation, but a whole separation of his body from his spirit. And Paul says, in this, we are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. I think that there is, at the same time as this is referring to Jesus' physical death, Him putting off His physical flesh, I think that there is a double meaning here. I think that Paul is also referencing our putting off of the spiritual flesh that is our sin nature. As Paul says in Romans chapter 6, the old self died with Christ. So, as he put off the body of his literal flesh in death, 
so in him our flesh, our sin nature, is cut off. So now we belong to God. And it's not by anything that we have done, but Christ has done it all. Okay, so this answers the question, how was this circumcision accomplished? And when? It was accomplished in the death of the Lord Jesus. But that also brings up a second question, how and when was it actually applied to me? And this is what Paul answers in verse 12. You see, Paul connects it to baptism. He says, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. So it's a spiritual circumcision. Circumcision of the heart. By putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. It was accomplished in his death. When was it applied though? Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So, Paul connects our spiritual circumcision, the application of it to our hearts, to baptism. We have two kinds of baptism in the New Testament for believers, right? We have spirit baptism, first of all, that act of God which is inward, and invisible, and then we have water baptism, which is definitely visible and physical. Water baptism follows spirit baptism, and water baptism is the physical sign of the spiritual reality in spirit baptism. Which baptism is Paul talking about? Three clues tell us that Paul is talking about spirit baptism here. First of all, I already mentioned Romans 2 verse 29, where Paul said that the the true circumcision is a circumcision of the heart by the spirit. So that tells me that as Paul is talking about heart circumcision here, that he must be talking about spirit baptism not water baptism. Because he's already said, again, that circumcision of the heart is by the Spirit. So this baptism must be with the Spirit and not water. Second, he is clear here, if you will look down at verse 11 again, that this baptism occurs through faith, which is how spirit baptism occurs. This baptism occurs through faith. So this would be spirit baptism again, and not as much water baptism. And then third, he is also very clear, and this is an implication, but I think we can infer that Paul is saying that this circumcision and this baptism are universal to the, the Christian experience. No exception. So again, this must be spirit baptism and not water baptism. Now let me unpack this a little bit further. When anyone turns from their sin and puts their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus baptizes that individual in that moment, in that exact moment, no delay, he baptizes that person with the Spirit into himself and into the church. It is an act of God that is spiritual entirely. It is invisible. It is inward. Okay? So 
being baptized into Christ, we are now identified and united with Jesus. That's what baptism on both levels, spirit and water, is all about. It's about being identified with Christ. And so being identified and united with Jesus, Paul says that what is his is yours. His death is your death. His burial is your burial. His resurrection is your resurrection. To put it a a different way, look back at verse 10. He says, you have been filled in Him. That's what he's unpacking in verses 11 and 12. What it means to be filled in Jesus. You have all that you need because you have been united to Him. You have His death, His burial, and His resurrection as your own. This union with Jesus means that the only way that you can be barred from the kingdom of God's Son is if God's Son is barred from that kingdom first. That's the preciousness of this doctrine of being united with Jesus. Being united to Him by the Spirit We died with Him, we were buried with Him, and we were raised with Him. So when when Satan comes to us after we have sinned and he says, you are worthless and you will never measure up, and now you better get to work and you must perform to to achieve worthiness and to, to measure up at last, and here's the steps you can do and here's the rules you must obey to measure up. We need to answer um Satan's accusations with Christ answers and self-doubts with Christ answers. Do we measure up? We are united to Christ. We have all that is in Him as our own. His death, His burial, His resurrection, His righteousness is our own. To every accusation, I have Christ is the answer. In Romans chapter 8, Paul says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who is bringing the charge against God's elect people? Satan is. The spiritual powers are. Accusing us before God, accusing us in our own conscience. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? This is what Satan does all the time. But who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us. Now, you know, don't you, that Christ measures up to the divine standard? Just as you must know that Christ measures up, you must also know that you are in Him. You must know that you are in Him. That That's the, the perfection of this unity with Jesus. That's how wonderful it is. It is so wonderful, so perfect, so complete that it becomes one of the Bibles, the New Testament's, one of its favorite phrases, most frequent phrases to describe the believer. You are in Him. So perfectly united that you are in Christ and Christ in you. His death is your death. His burial is your burial. His resurrection is yours. Let's look at verses 13 and 14. He says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, 
God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Would you quickly turn back to Ephesians chapter 2? Paul said that we were dead in our trespasses and in the uncircumcision of our flesh. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul is going to expand on, on both of those predicaments. What it means to be dead in trespasses and in uncircumcision. Look at verses 1 to 3 of Ephesians 2. Here's the, the first predicament, that we were dead in trespasses. We need to we need to know a little bit better what that meant and what it looked like so we can know how good our salvation is. Paul wrote there, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is what it means that you and I were dead in our trespasses. It meant that we were just simply following the dictates of our sin nature, the whims of our flesh. We were going the way of Satan, following the course of the world. Whatever that looked like for our culture and us personally, we were going the way of the world. And our destination was wrath. That's what it means to be dead in our sin. We were without hope. And then in verses 11 and 12, Paul unpacks what it means to have this this um, position of Gentiles. This identity of Gentiles. He says, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, that that's simply means that the Jewish nation adhering to the law of Moses would look at the the nations around them and just label them all the uncircumcision. You are called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that at that time you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. This is what it looked like to be dead in our trespasses and in the uncircumcision of flesh. We were without hope. We have been asking over the last few weeks, do we have everything that we need? We were so far away from from hope without Christ that we didn't have a single thing that we needed. But now, Paul says again, Although you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. God forgave you all your trespasses. Think about your trespasses. There's those sins long ago that we still regret to this day and that we can never forget. Those sins that we committed with a high hand, with a balled up fist in the face of God. We knew better, but we were going to sin anyway. We were in Christ. We knew the gospel, but we were still going to sin. God has forgiven you all your trespasses. 
And then there is also every slight against God that is simply part of you, still a part of you that never even occurs to you. All of those trespasses forgiven by God. Every sin that you committed before you were a believer, every sin up until now, and every trespass against God for all of your life forgiven. That's what he means. Every deed that is just pure wrong and also every wrong reason that taints all the right things that we do. All trespasses forgiven. Every sin of every believer ever laid on Christ, paid for by Christ, and forgiven. Your sin, my sin, our failure to keep the demand of the law of God accumulated for us a record of debt that we could never begin to atone for, that we could never begin to pay. The Bible says that God set it aside. He canceled the record of debt and set it aside. I think that maybe... Um, I think that this could be a, a weak translation here by the ESV, which is not something I say very much about the ESV, but I think it is a kind of a weak translation. Because what it means is that God put it away from him. He put it away from him completely. Where did he put the record of debt that stood against us? How the law exposed our guilt and demanded justice. Where did he put this record of debt? He put it away by nailing it to the cross. Nailing it to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's gone completely. Christ paid the debt in full. And there is nothing more that can be added to what Jesus has done. And so verse 15 rejoices. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but we are wrestling against the spiritual forces of evil, those rulers and authorities. Three times now, Paul has spoken about them in Colossians to show us that they cannot best us. They can't defeat us. He said in chapter 1 that Jesus made them. He's the one who created all the rulers and authorities. And then it says now that He triumphs over them. He has disarmed them and put them to open shame. Think back to what I said in the beginning about Satan's plan against you. You know, that three-track playlist that's on repeat all of your life. Number one, Satan says, you need this. You have to do this. You need to obtain this if you're going to be happy. If you're going to have a fulfilled life to be satisfied, you need this. Just do this. And then once you have done it, he says, how could you do that? Again? You did this again? The 
The thing that you swore you would not do, the thing that you felt so much shame for, that you prayed over and repented for, are you kidding me? You have done the same thing again? And He who promised you the world when you took the bait now shames you to hell. And He says you are worthless and you will not measure up ever. But then track three. Wait a second. Don't despair completely. I have a way forward for you. I have a way back for you. If you will just buckle down, if you'll grit your teeth and just do what God says, swear you will never go back to that, do what God says, then you can measure up. Then you will be worthy if you will perform for your salvation. So it's three tracks. Do this. Two, you did that again. And then three, now, Just do better. Do better. But we have Christ. Christ is the answer all the way. To the temptations to sin? Why would I have that? What what does the world have that I need? I have Christ. You're going to offer me more happiness in this world that is passing away than what I have in Christ? And even when we have sinned, we will sin. We can still say to the shame of the sin, listen, I have Christ and that does not change. So we rise up again in Christ. And as far as the performance, just do better mentality. Obey the rules and you will measure up. No, Christ has measured up for us. His life, His death, His burial, His resurrection, it's all ours. We're united to Christ. We don't have to measure up Because Christ has measured up for us. We don't have to perform. His performance is ours already. Eternally. All our sin is forgiven. We are worthy, not in ourselves, but in Christ. I have Christ. That is the answer to Satan's accusations and to all of our self-doubts. I have Christ. So God has triumphed over the spiritual powers in Jesus, putting them to open shame. There's a, there's a graphic picture here. The picture is of a long line of prisoners shackled together in a parade of shame before their conquerors, being led in this procession by the conquering general. And that's the picture. Of them, the spiritual power is being put to open shame. Christ has conquered. They are defeated. So why should we listen to their accusations? Why should we give in to their temptations? We have Christ. In Him, again, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you, believer, have been filled in Him. You have Jesus. You have all that you need. Let's pray. Father, we thank You. We praise You for Jesus and the precious truth that we are united to Christ. We could not have more than what we have already in Him. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We will be with Him because we are in Him. Where He is, we're headed. His destination is ours. His reward is ours. His kingdom ours. We have all that we need in Christ. So we praise You. 
And I pray that my church family would be encouraged and built up in the truth of what they have in Christ. To encouraged and strengthened to um, to answer all of the accusations that scream against us, all of the shame of the sin that we have committed, and all of the temptation now to find our worthiness in our own obedience to the rules. I pray that we will always answer, I have Christ, I have enough, I could not have more than what I have in Him. Lord, give us strength. Help us to persevere, stable and steadfast, not shifted from the hope of the gospel. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.